We read scripture this morning from Colossians chapter 1. The book of Colossians chapter 1. hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossa, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present unto you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, 
and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 5. Lord's Day 5, found in the back of our Psalters on page 5. We have question and answers 12 through 15. We begin now the second part of the Catechism of Man's Deliverance. Lord's Day 5, question 12. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, One who is also very God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the first part of the catechism leaves us in a hopeless state. We're guilty. We're worthy of damnation. There's no way out of the depravity into which we have cast ourselves in Adam. We love ourselves. And we pursue self-love in everything that we do. And everything that we do then only increases that guilt and that damnation that we deserve. We're dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins by nature. All the doors of escape, as we noted, are shut. We tried to figure out, perhaps we can get out by blaming God for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Perhaps we can get out because God, after all, is a loving God. He's a merciful God. Perhaps you'll look the other way when it comes to sin. We looked at all the different ways of escape and all the ways were closed. There's no way of escape of ourselves. 
Natural man has gone to great lengths to try to find a way out. There's something in every man that cries out for more than what this life has to offer. And even though the wicked do not identify their misery as spiritual, natural man searches. He looks for meaning to life. And he comes up empty without the gospel. Apart from the gospel, he'll stoop to almost any experience to try to find peace and comfort. And we know the horror of that. Cults that seek peace, they seek a degree of redemption and escape that often leads to mass suicides or other tragic sin. People in every age, men, women, young people, trying to find an answer to life but looking in the wrong places. Lederberg Catechism directs us to the only way of reconciliation, the only way of peace. And that's through the blood of Jesus Christ and the satisfaction that is ours in Him alone. We start now the second chapter of the Heidelberg Catechism. The first, the knowledge of our misery. The second, the knowledge now of our deliverance. Lord's Days 5 and 6 are somewhat of an introduction to this section. And they're included to demonstrate that our deliverance can only come about in a mysterious, marvelous, superhuman manner. It's not anything that we can accomplish of ourselves. God alone is able to bring about that deliverance. He's the only one, and he must do it. And so our deliverance, the only way out, is possible through his marvelous work of reconciliation. Two parties are at odds. They need to be brought together. The only way of reconciliation is that satisfaction be made. And we noted that last week, the importance of satisfaction. The fact that payment is necessary. And unless that payment be made, there can be no reconciliation. Our deliverance then, our way out of our misery, is possible only through God's wondrous work of providing a Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ is the one through whom we are reconciled to God. And that's the emphasis here of Colossians 1. Colossians 1, speaking too of alienation, the fact that God is alienated from His people. There's a separation, a gulf that exists because of sin. And what's the only hope? What's the comfort? You, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind, verse 21, by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. In the body of His flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Christ has accomplished that which we could never do. And we look to him as the Emmanuel, God with man. Now the catechism leads us to Christ, but it does so slowly, deliberately. And it does so for a reason, a reason that's equally important in our day as it was during the time of the catechism. The instructors desire to show us precisely and exactly who our Savior is. So that we do not develop our own understanding of a Savior. We may not live by a Savior according to our own imagination. 
The Savior whom we embrace must be the Savior set forth by Scripture. And our instructors then in the Heidelberg Catechism will show us precisely who that Savior is. Not a Savior of our own imagination. That's always been a problem. It continues to remain. It's idolatry. We must know the Savior, the Christ of Scripture. He alone is able to save us. And He alone is able to make that satisfaction for our sins so that we are reconciled to God. And so the approach of the catechism then is very subjective again. It's very personal. It's from the viewpoint of our own struggle, our own difficulty. No one else is able to reconcile us but God Himself. And He does so through His own Son, Jesus Christ. We look at this Lord's Day then under the theme salvation through reconciliation. Noting, first of all, the necessity of reconciliation. Secondly, the impossibility of that reconciliation through any creature. And finally, the possibility only through the Emmanuel, God with us. If sinners are to be saved, they need to be reconciled to God. God and sinners are by nature, alienated one from another. And that again is the point of Paul here in Colossians 1. Speaking of the reality, the struggle, the difficulty that one confronts in terms of the fact of sin and its effect in our lives. God is holy. God has a holy and just wrath for sin. We are sinners. And therefore we're the objects of God's wrath. And we've noted God lays upon every man, woman, and child that's ever lived. Love me. He comes with that command. Love me. Love me with all that you are. With the whole of your being. And we stand before that command. And we're ashamed. We're humbled. We acknowledge. I can't. Hatred lives within my nature. I'm inclined to hate. I cannot comply with that holy and righteous demand. We're dead by nature. And we can't do anything that would be pleasing to God. We have a hard time sometimes seeing how our sins can make us worthy of damnation. We might not even call them sins sometimes. We think, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but it's not that major. It's not that big of a deal. Isn't that our attitude so often? We kind of minimize the things that we've done. And we try to argue even it away. That's the wrong attitude. Sin cannot be tolerated by a holy and righteous God. And as God, in His holiness, sees sin, every sin, no matter how small in our estimation, deserves to be punished with everlasting judgment from the living God. That sin may be minor in the eyes of the world. It may be minor even in our own estimation. But our sin against God is far more serious than any offense that's ever been performed against us by anyone else. Sometimes we take offense because someone sinned against us. That cannot begin to compare to what you've done to God and what I've done to God. Important it is for us to understand God's punishment for sin is just. And God's punishment is such that sin must be punished with death and hell. 
We stand before a holy, a righteous God. And if we're to be restored into favor with Jehovah God, God's justice must be satisfied. God will not justify the wicked on the basis of anything of himself. God cannot justify one who continues in wickedness without a solid basis for that justification. God's wrath can't be turned away from iniquity, which deserves punishment. There's no other way. And we've noted that in the previous Lord's Days. God is just, and God's justice demands punishment. God will not turn away His wrath without someone making satisfaction so that there can be reconciliation. Peace and fellowship with God are possible only in the way of God's justice being satisfied. God's not going to just wink and turn His back on sin. God demands that that sin be punished with temporal and eternal punishment. In order for God's wrath then to be turned away, justice has to be realized. God taught this throughout all of history. If we look back in history, we see how God taught the importance and necessity of reconciliation and satisfaction. Adam and Eve were taught that when sin separated them from the presence of God. And they knew it. They felt it. They were trying to hide themselves from God with leaves. And God taught them, the only possibility of you being reconciled with me is through the shedding of innocent blood. And God then killed the animals that were necessary in order that their skins be given to Adam and Eve for a covering from sin. Reconciliation through the shedding of innocent blood. That's what Abel was taught. As Abel grew up then under Adam and Eve, and as he came to years, and as he realized his sin and his sinfulness, he needed to bring a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that God required was the sacrifice of a lamb, the firstlings of the flock. This is what Moses taught the people when he was moved by God to bring the law and the commandments before the people. When he taught them the proper observation of the Passover feast, that Passover feast pointing to the way in which man would be reconciled with God, pointing to the lamb that would be slain, and laying out all the requirements then that were necessary, teaching them the sacrifices and the laws and the importance of them all. The tabernacle, the temple, repeatedly pointing to the need for reconciliation. The only way individuals could come before the presence of Jehovah God was with blood or with incense. God was teaching, apart from reconciliation, apart from those sins being satisfied, there's no possibility of salvation. Now what does that reconciliation involve? It demands an active, loving sacrifice for sin. Reconciliation demands that satisfaction be made, that payment be made. And that satisfaction involves meeting the obligations that God himself has established. God's satisfaction demands these obligations have to be met. 
in order for the price of sin to be paid. And what is God's demand? An unchanging life of perfect obedience before the living God. God demands it as an act of sacrifice. So that it's an act of desire to please God in perfection by fulfilling the obligations of His will perfectly. That's the demand that God lays upon man. An active seeking to do His will and to live humbly before His face. Now the sinner makes satisfaction by seeking to suffer hell then so that he can satisfy God's justice. Satisfaction is not going to be achieved by a wicked person passively experiencing eternal punishment in hell. That's not going to satisfy God's justice. That's not going to reconcile God because their suffering isn't willing. Their suffering isn't active. Their suffering isn't motivated by love. God requires perfect satisfaction, an expression of love. And so for us to be satisfied, for us to be reconciled to God, we need to totally be able to lay aside all sin, love God perfectly, and wholeheartedly serve Him and devote ourselves to Him. Renouncing all sin, living perfectly for Him and for His glory. Now, beloved, even if we were able to change our lives today and do that going forward, we still would never be able to make up for the debt of sin that exists previously. It would be like if we destroyed all of our credit and we went bankrupt. But we started over again. And now we've maintained impeccable credit. But that doesn't erase again the fact that there's still that debt. There's still that problem that existed previously. So that the situation is not reduced. It doesn't go away. God says, love me. Love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. And our unending debt to God is that love. And we can never pay it ourselves. Perfect reconciliation is only possible through a miracle, a wonder from God. We can't. Now the catechism, when it asks that first question, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Launches into an answer that seems to not answer that question. It seems to distract again from it. Kind of a side answer. But the point again is to direct us to see clearly our need for a wonder of God's grace. We ourselves cannot make that sacrifice. So then that's the next question. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. We don't have the desire. The desire is not there to love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength now to all eternity. Because of our sinful nature, that desire is never pure. It's never so strong that I'm willing to go to hell to satisfy God's justice perfectly in love. We enjoy our sin yet by nature. And we don't really want to leave it for good. The very desire to give God a perfect, loving sacrifice doesn't exist within us in the perfection that God demands it of us. And we know that. Sometimes we even struggle. Do I really want to go to heaven? 
Now we know we want to go to heaven. We desire it. We long for it. And yet, we love the things here below. We're connected and tied to them by very strong bonds. By God's grace, we desire, but the sinful nature still stands in the way. And so the point of the catechism simply is this, and the point of Scripture, you don't have the power. I don't have the power to make that sacrifice of ourselves. Even if I was to desire now to obey God perfectly, from now on, still, there's that past sin of which I'm guilty, and that sin that I'm guilty of in Adam. I don't have the spiritual power to overcome sin. And I still yet fall into temptation repeatedly. And I know that from my own experience. I'm not only guilty, I'm corrupt as to my nature. And even if that guilt was removed, the corruption would stay. And even if the corruption was removed, the guilt would still be there. Such is the reality. And as the Catechism says, daily I increase my debt before God. Instead of getting in a better position, I commit more sin. And so now, because I lived another day and was able to commit more sin, I find myself increasing that debt. So that that pile of debt that I owe before God just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger the longer I live. Regardless of how perfect we lived and walked, that bondage of debt remains. We can try ever so hard, but again, we can't open the door. I can't get out myself. My best works are still tainted. They're still as filthy rags before God. God is pleased with the works that he performs in and through us, but they never can serve as the ground or foundation of our salvation. The idea here is of a person working for an employer, which person is a constant liability to the employer, in a sense. The longer he works for you, the more he costs you. And so you're going to get rid of this person as quickly as you can. This person isn't worth keeping. That's the sense that we are as we stand before God by nature. The longer we stand before God, the more unworthy we become. The digger we deep dig our pit, the more in debt we are before the living God. Sin continues to be committed. But in addition, in This reconciliation is impossible for you and for me because the shedding of blood is required. In chapter 1 here, verse 14, we read of that expression, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Romans 9, verse 22 directs us, without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. God requires not outward gifts, That was what the Pharisees thought. If only they brought enough gifts, if only they did enough good deeds, then they could somehow be reconciled to God. But God said no. What's necessary is the shedding of innocent blood. The only way of reconciliation is through blood. And that blood needs to be shed. So the confession, beloved, that you and I are required to make as we stand before the living God is, no, I cannot make satisfaction of myself. Now that confession goes against every fiber of our being. We want to be independent. We want to be able to do everything. This answer puts us, so to speak, on spiritual warfare, welfare. We're now dependent. We can't get out. 
The only possibility is if someone bails us out, if someone helps us. In our pride, we don't want to make that confession. In our pride, we are quick to think that we can escape ourselves. We can do something. God humbles our pride. Jesus says, All those who would come after me, let them deny themselves. Verse 27, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the only possibility. That Christ be in me. That's the water that is necessary. The last thing that we want to do is deny ourselves. But there's nothing left after that than God. And only by grace do we do that. God works in us the grace to say, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. I'm unworthy. And by faith I lay hold upon the only one who is able. But the next question is, maybe there's a creature. Perhaps there's a creature that can help us here. We may not, we cannot bring a substitute, is the catechism point. We don't have anything to call our own to bring to God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Every single thing is His. And just think about it. If we owe someone something, maybe we borrowed their drill, we don't substitute it with something else, bring them a fan in return. It's their right to determine whether or not a substitution is allowed. That's not our call. It would be easier for us to substitute something else. But as we stand again before the living God, He alone is God. Another creature cannot satisfy in my place. God's justice demands. The soul that sinned, that soul must pay. And no one else will be accepted. A mere creature is not able to sustain God's wrath. The payment that's necessary is so great that any creature would be destroyed because of the wrath of God being poured out upon it for the sin that you or I have committed. And so the conclusion we come to is no mere creature is able to deliver us. No mere creature can bring about that reconciliation. Man finds no possibility of deliverance of himself or through another creature. The door is shut. It's locked. It's barred. Blood must be shed. The blood of the guilty one. And God then directs us by faith to Jesus Christ. He gives us a way out. And that the confessions beautifully set forth in the handout that was given. The canons in the second head, article 2. Since, therefore, we are unable to make that satisfaction in our own persons or to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God, he hath been pleased in his infinite mercy to give us his only begotten Son, for our surety, who was made sin and became a curse for us and in our stead, that he might make satisfaction to divine justice on our behalf. What man could never do, God did for us. A real righteous man, who is also God, made atonement for our sins. The believer doesn't give up in his quest for that 
deliverance. One may ask, why so persistent? Now, the catechism here is reflecting the questions and struggles of a believer as that one who has been given to know God's mercy and God's love. And as God has worked that longing for fellowship in his heart, God directs him now to the Savior. God directs him to the only hope that is possible. God works in us a longing for reconciliation. We're not content to be at war against God. And so it is in our lives. When there's sins that are committed against one another, reconciliation is that which is necessary. And we seek out, we pursue that reconciliation by God's grace. God works in us a longing for covenant fellowship. Fellowship with Himself and with one another. Faith motivates us to cling to God. To lay hold upon the wonder of His Word and His revelation. And it brings us to this confession. Lord, I cannot do it myself. There is no creature that is able to help me. The only hope that I have is in that name above every name. The name of my Savior, Jesus Christ, by which men alone are saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Now the catechism is not yet providing us with that answer. But it's stating what would be necessary for our salvation. The answer is given the next Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day we get Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, as the answer to that question. In the light of God's demand, our sinful condition, the mediator has to be God and man. And so that's what's established here. Only one who's very man can represent us. Only one who's very God is able to pay the price that's necessary. The fall of man into sin is so great that it requires that God make that reconciliation. The blood of lambs, the blood of goats could not reconcile. The high priests were not capable of performing it. What man could never do the Son of God came to accomplish. The striking wonder is that He is the one sent by God, perfectly equipped to perform this wonder. The Belgic Confession in Article 19 in the last sentence makes that statement. Wherefore we confess that He is very God and very man. Very God by His power to conquer death and very man that He might die for us according to the infirmity of His flesh. He brings about reconciliation. Reconciliation of all things that are alienated from God. That's the beautiful emphasis here of Colossians 1. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, that is in Christ, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This is the wonder that he performs for you and for me. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised 
for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a wonder. What a marvelous expression of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ willingly took upon himself everything that we deserve. That he represented us standing in our place before the judgment seat of God. And that he freed us fully and entirely from the bondage to sin and to death. He provides reconciliation. He opens the way to fellowship and communion with Jehovah God. And he does so perfectly with his sacrifice, which is so perfect and so complete that if it were God's will, it would have fully satisfied for the sins of every single person that ever lived. So powerful it was. But of course, God determined it would be limited to those who are his own. To Jesus Christ, then, beloved, we turn by faith. And we stand in awe of the wonder of the love of God for us. A God who did not turn his back on us, but a God who sought us out. A God who sent his own son to stand in our place. A God who delights in us as those who are covered by his righteousness. Is there hope in the midst of our depravity? Beloved, there is. No room for pride. No room for boasting. The only fitting posture as we stand before the almighty God of heaven and earth is that of humility, that of brokenness, that of self-loathing, that of looking away from self to the Emmanuel, God with man, who alone is able to open that door into perfect reconciliation. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the great wonder that Thou hast performed. May we live in the conscious wonder that we are citizens of thy kingdom, that we've been bought and brought into fellowship and communion with thee, that that door has been opened through the blood of our Savior and that it can never be closed because of anything of ourselves. Thou art the one who has accomplished it and thou art the one who will preserve and keep covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Lord, work in us the joy and the thankfulness Work in us to worship and to praise thy name now and to all eternity. Amen.